Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Residence Test. I'm your host, Pete Chapin, from Continuum. Now, Continuum is headquartered in the city of Boston and is, in fact, located smack dab in the Innovation District, which makes a lot of sense to us, intuitively. But it's interesting to stop and think about why this can be the case. Why is Boston a place where there seems to be no shortage of people looking to try new things? Why is there a part of the city named after the spirit of innovation? And how is it that certain places become hubs of this kind of thinking? Few people are better suited to answer these questions than Kara Miller, who launched her show Innovation Hub on local public radio in 2011 and now broadcasts nationally. Kara interviews a wide range of people who are working on crafting the future. That's everyone from Thomas Friedman and Jared Diamond to Michael Pollan and Marissa Mayer. She's been at it long enough to see ideas that were fringe a few years ago begin to enter the national conversation. Kara is also a published writer whose work has appeared in the Boston Globe, the National Journal, TheAtlantic.com, and many others. She sat down earlier this spring with Continuum's John Campbell, Senior Vice President of Experience and Service Design, to talk about robots, immigrants, and how the U.S. could spread innovation throughout our country beyond spots like Boston, New York, and Silicon Valley. Here's what they had to say. Welcome, Kara. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah. We're super excited because uh, you're a neighbor, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You're down the road a little bit, um, but we listen to you actively because we're in the innovation game and you're kind of at the arc of the frontier seeing what's going on and talking to great people. So we're excited to have you here. Well, thanks for thanks for doing it. And we, uh, we also acknowledge that you're um, typically the interviewer, so we thought it was about time that you got interviewed. That's right. The question here is, will I have anything to say? <laughs> oh, I don't doubt it that. It certainly will not be new. The que- I'm, I'm going to try to composite all the smart things I've heard Look in at five the years. themes across. Yeah, Fair exactly. Enough. So, so five years is right. Um, you guys actually launched in 2011. That's right. So five and a half years we've five been doing the years. show. Okay, great. So um, maybe just to start with, tell us a little bit about Innovation Hub and the, the genesis of it. Well, um, so uh, five and a half years ago, I was um, sub-hosting radio at WGBH. I was doing some TV at WGBH too. Actually, I had started doing some stuff at WGBH um, in the TV realm, TV analysis, mostly political analysis. Oh, okay. And um, I I really had another job. That, that was all side stuff. And I was also writing um, newspaper columns, but that was all side stuff. I really had another job, which was I was a professor of English. Um, and I had been writing newspaper columns um, while I was getting my doctorate, just sort of like a side thing, you know, once a week or once every other week. Um, and then I started doing some TV analysis, but, you know, just side stuff. And then um, eventually I ended up uh, as an assistant professor of English at UMass. And so on the, so at the, the media stuff kind of grew along with doing the professor stuff. And uh, so when I had a vacation or, you know, professors don't teach every day, um, I would try to sub um, at WGBH doing doing radio and they had in 2010 they had started having this kind of NPR format um, where they had had classical music before so that's what I was doing I was subbing when I could and I really liked it and radio was was in my view kind of better than TV because a no makeup and makeup (laughs) and I'm telling you makeup for television is terrible to take off terrible um 
And also, people end up focusing on like, you know, you have to think like, what am I wearing? Did I wear this right, last right. time I was on TV? Um, and so radio is much better in that way. But it's also better generally in that the segments are longer and you really get to talk to somebody about something for a while instead of for six minutes. Um, so I really like doing that. So I, like almost six years ago, I pitched this idea of doing a show about innovation in Boston. I wish I could say it was super thought out. <laughs> it wasn't. It was as simple as that initially. Pretty much. Yeah. I was like, let's do a show about innovation. And I, I knew that our station wanted to cover innovation more. I, I knew that, you know, Boston was a place where there's a lot of healthcare innovation. There's a lot of educate people in education thinking new ideas. There's a lot of robotics. So, you know, tech. There's just sort of all sorts of things going on in different spheres right. that kind of add up to innovation. Um, so the head of the station was like, sure, let's do it. I think he paid me $200 a week at the beginning. Um, let's try to put something together. It'll be early Saturday morning. So we did it. And I mean, remember, I had an actual job. Uh, this was like an yeah, on yeah, the side yeah. kind of thing. Um, and, and we launched it. And for a while, I did have that actual job. I eventually had to leave that actual job to do this job because I realized I had two full-time jobs. Right. Um, That's a good sign, though, right? Yeah, it was a good sign. And then about three years ago, um, the show became available nationally. Um, and now we're on 80 stations around the country, you know, NPR stations. That's amazing. So, yeah. Did you ever think that it was going to get to that scale? Or like maybe in the back of your mind? Or? I don't... Gee, I, I think in the beginning, I was just trying to get the thing out the door every right. week. Um and I did know very early on that my own interest, which is really what I followed in the beginning, was Boston, yeah, but really, if I saw something interesting in the New York Times, I just called the person up and said, hey, can sure. you come on the show? You know, sometimes they lived in Boston, and sometimes they didn't, but the, but the implications of what they were saying, like, we should rethink higher education, it was obvious to me that that wasn't, like, specific to Boston. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, your show, you you talk about um, the show being about talking to people who craft the future, mm -hmm. um, and I, I really like that because it's much more broader than some definition of like technical innovation, right? Like technology driven or basic science or design. It's really any or all of those. Um, can you talk a little bit about this this broader definition of innovation for the show? Well, I mean, I think that. People often associate the word innovation with technology. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think that's wrong in the sense of that you can rethink education and you can rethink medicine um, and you can rethink the way government does things. Um, so I think this idea should be applied across the board in part because a lot of the really interesting things that tech companies have done you think about oh facebook has this really inventive campus you know out in the silicon valley area and people think about that as wow that's so interesting but i think what the mis it is a mistake to think gee that should be confined to people who are software engineers and only they that's should right. get to have free food or sort of free thinking or, you know, a workplace that is conducive to innovation. But but people who are in education and in medicine, they should be in little boxes and and they shouldn't because I mean, I don't know why software engineers are in a special category, but yes, I think innovation is everywhere and one of the things we've actually tried to do that's really taught me a lot in doing the show is we've looked at innovation 
um, from the past. So we've talked about people like H.J. Heinz and Estee Lauder. And some of those people were not just innovators in terms of a particular brand. They created products, you know, take uh, both Heinz and Lauder, created products that essentially did not exist before they created them. So you know, you go a few decades before Estee Lauder came on the scene, and she was not the only person creating makeup, but she was part of that first cohort where, you know, a, a few decades before she came on the scene, she, nobody knew what blush or mascara was. It, this wasn't trying to sell a better mascara. This was trying to convince people they needed a thing called mascara sure. that they'd never heard of. Um, and that was really hard. And, and H.J. Hunt was coming, it, part of the reason he had clear bottles was that he was coming into a world where people did not trust packaged food. He was very much at the vanguard of that. And he was just trying to sell people not just on ketch ketchup or pickles, but on the idea that you could buy pre-prepared food and it was safe to do that and it would not kill you or anything. Um, and so thinking about those people and those people have nothing to do with technology, really. Right, right. Um, but they were huge innovators who totally remade their industries. So I think we've tried to think about innovation in that broad way because I really believe that it touches every area and that it has in the past and that it will in the future and everybody should be able to think of themselves as innovators. That's great. Uh, what's the role Innovation Hub has in the diffusion of innovation? Um, you know, you, you, you go out, you identify interesting stories, interesting people, and interesting industries, and then you share it back to all of us. And, you know, while, while we do innovation here, it's very inspiring to hear some of the new, fresh takes you have on that. Well, I mean, hopefully we don't have all the usual suspects on. Um, hopefully we bring people on who, um, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of. I mean, we try to find the sort of mo people with the most interesting ideas about how all sorts of things are changing, including culture, and and then bring that you know in all to all the areas where um, the show is heard on the air, but then also the podcast. I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, you know, two people now who I think are are a lot better known than than maybe they were when we had them on five years ago. Um, are Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT. And they talked a lot about, they've talked so much about automation and how it's changing the world. And that's talked about so much now, but you know, five years ago that wasn't talked about that much. And I remember having them on really near the beginning of the show and thinking, whoa, I have, this is changing the way I'm thinking. There's only a few things that are that way. I remember Michael Pollan coming on to talk about germs and dirt and how they're actually good for you. And there were like a few things that actually completely changed the way I day-to-day -day think about the world. Um, and Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynjolfsson who said, look, you know, companies are making more money, but they're not employing as many people. Um, we see a gap here. This is something's going to happen. And I feel like five years later, the ripples of that outwards, not just through technology, through politics and culture, are so notable and so clear. Um, whereas five years ago, uh, they weren't, but I could tell that what they were telling me was like, really? Corporate profits are going up, but nobody's sharing those profits? Why are they not sharing them? And, and I remember them saying like, well, because like, there's robots. There's not that many people that they have to share these profits with. Um, and that's only going to be more and more true. Robots aren't getting worse. They're getting better. Right. Um, and so I think, 
Now, all I can say is we sort of try to figure out what's really interesting, maybe who's a little bit under the radar, who's rethinking whatever it is, medicine or education or whatever. And and we try to talk about things, I try to talk about things in kind of a broad layperson way, A, because I am a layperson and I cannot talk to people about coding in a, in a software engineering kind of way, um, but B, because, you know, we want this to be accessible to the most number of people. Yeah, the um, it, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about that. I, I, I remember a show with them. I remember Second Machine Age coming out. Right. And then last year during the election, there was talk about universal basic income, right? And I hadn't put those together, but that was this notion that, you know, what do we do with robots and how do people earn a living yes. and all that? So yes. you're right. That has really, over the last five years or whatever really come about. Yes. Right? And actually, after the election, we did a special show and we called some people who've been on the show before who we thought, who like immediately came to our mind. Right. And the first person was Andrew McAfee, who was in Portugal. We called him up. He taped himself. Um, he was talking to us on his iPhone, taped us on his iPad. <laughs> he did a great job. And he talked about the impact of jobs leaving. And I said, why didn't, you know, I don't remember a debate. I don't remember an opponent or, you know, anybody running or a debate moderator who mentioned automation. Why not? And he said, I mean, because they had another explanation for where the jobs went which is immigrants took your jobs or or they went somewhere else um what is less talked about is the fact that yes many jobs have gone to places like china but china itself has embarked upon a process of buying hundreds of thousands of robots to replace the so the jobs may physically be in china the question is whether a chinese person has those jobs and more and more often they don't right which means they can't be recouped by an American worker exactly. anyway. Exactly. You can bring the factory back, but if the factory is filled with robots, then you've got it. Then you you've brought manufacturing back to the U.S. You've accomplished something, but you're missing a whole piece of like. But but how about the manufacturing jobs? Right. You know, and that stuff. Right. So so this is a nice segue to to the next question I had, which is around all this this action around innovation in government or the role of immigrants and the like and last month early last month you had a show um what immigration does for innovation which i really enjoyed um and it's timely with the, i mean the reason part of the reason the timing was such was the travel ban the first travel ban had just been announced and there's a lot of conversation around immigration and one of the long-term implications that, that that you all discussed was the decision um, or the necessity by immigrants to not come to the U.S. versus come to the U.S. and that the brightest end up potentially studying somewhere else. Um, and so then we don't get the benefits of an Einstein or a Levi Strauss or Andy Grove at Intel, as, as you discussed. Um, reflecting back on that show now, what what are your thoughts on that? Um, it, uh, well... That was another special show that we were not planning to do, kind of like the election show. Um, but it, it's, you know, as you said, innovation and immigration have historically in the U.S. been so tightly tied together that it seemed like an obvious thing for us to talk a little bit about. And the first person we called up was Walter Isaacson, who has written um, both about Steve Jobs, who's the son of a Syrian immigrant, but also... Uh, has written a lot about, he's written, you know, these big doorstop books, and one is about Steve Jobs, but one is about Albert Einstein, who came as part of, I think you could argue, one of the biggest waves of immigrant 
you know, so the influxes in the 20th century, um, the, in the years surrounding World War II, Einstein came, I think, in 1933, so he was a little bit early, but he could, he knew what was, he knew the direction things were going in, if not, he didn't know exactly, but he knew things were getting more hostile for him, and it was harder for him to do his work. Um, and then, of course, lots of other scientists came in the years after that, around, around the war. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think we, you know, this is such a complicated problem. And I think America has always been trepidatious about immigrants. This is not the first time. Americans were very trepidatious about bringing in Jewish immigrants in the years around World War II, but that wasn't the first time. They're very trepidatious around World War One, and and going back before that. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, we're sitting in, in Boston and the way the Irish were treated That's in right. Boston was was terrible. I mean, there were signs that said no dogs or Irish need apply, right? So this is not the first time that America's had some concerns about new culture, people taking jobs, people working at lower wages, all that stuff. Um, I think what is seen often is um, immigrants doing jobs like, you know, busing tables or that kind of thing. What is, and that's all important work, what is unseen, I think, or not realized as much on a larger scale, is the role of people like Andy Grove, who helped create Intel, and, and you know, Sergey Brin, who helped create Google, and um, the fact that so many people in places like Silicon Valley are immigrants, so many companies were either founded or co-founded by an immigrant, and that those companies, in turn, hired a whole mess of Americans after that, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of them. So I think very often in our minds, the relationship between bringing people in and then the jobs those people create, th those two steps are so distant that they're not, you know, people don't necessarily see the connection. Um, but, you know, as Walter Isaacson rightly said, it was Einstein and the scientists who followed him, largely from Germany and Eastern Europe, who laid the groundwork for Silicon Valley actually being in America, right. um, who made the semiconductor possible. It was their science that did that. I mean, the first thing they did were like, was like being put to work in the Manhattan Project and in the war and doing war-related things. But the things that came out of that technology were not war-related, really. They were much more consumer-related technologies. Um, I think we're still struggling with that. I don't think we're out of the woods on this. And I think that um, we actually have... Uh, I, I just interviewed somebody who's a former Canadian diplomat, and in his view... Canada is going to pick up a lot of the benefit of being like, well, do you want to be on, do you want to be able to Skype with people in New York and Silicon Valley? At, you know, do you want to be on the same time zone? Um, not that far away. Uh, business trips are easy. And hey, immigrating to Canada is way easier. So come here. And uh, Canada has historically actually been easier. They have a little bit of a different immigration system. And so they highly privilege people who have, um, uh, higher degrees and have, you know, like those people, it's it's much easier to, to move to Canada. So I do think that there will be other countries that benefit probably from just the increased perception of hassle, but also, also people not being sure if, 
you know, the initial travel ban and the list of six slash seven countries, will that expand? Is that just the beginning? Is Pakistan going to be in trouble too? You know, on and on. Right, right. Yeah, and where and, and what are the long-term, yeah, knock-on effects of that, that sort of a thing? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I don't know that we know, but I do think from people I talk to in Silicon Valley and stuff, there's definite fear. There's people thinking we shouldn't have major scientific conferences in the U.S. because... If people can't come in from, you know, if they're really good Iranian engineers, but they can't come in because they they don't have the right passport, maybe we should just have it like in Toronto or something right. or in London. You know, maybe we should just make people's lives easier. But there are fallouts from that. We just, we won't see them immediately. Right, right. Uh, regarding Andy Grove, Walter Isaacson had a great quote that I think gets to that. And I wanted to ask you a question about it. He said, um, and America has always been there for somebody like an Andy Grove, escaping oppression, escaping tyranny, and the payback for America is not just a moral payback, it's an economic playback, uh, economic payback when people like that become founders of companies like Intel. I just saw an article, uh, I think it was in the Sunday New York Times, that applications internationally to universities are already down 40%. Uh, and you could very well see a Canada or, or other countries picking that up. And then do they stay, right, like Steve Jobs' father, who's Syrian? Uh, right. And, and do they have that impact? One of the questions that, that you asked um, Mr. Isaacson was, what does he think will happen in the years to come in bringing people in and the jobs and creativity in the future, specifically for the U.S.? Um, so I, I guess what ask you that question. Do I? What do I think in terms of? People that, that coming in, people that, coming that in. we started to talk about, yeah, and uh, you know, like you said, you may not, we may not see it immediately, but whether it's generational or sooner, we start to see the, the, the outcomes. Not of in terms of what policy will be, but but in terms of what impact will be. Yeah, yeah. It's tough because I already think we are a melting pot. We already have a lot of immigrants, and that, and those people are here. Many of them are citizens they're married to citizens and that's not going to change so america is already a product of lots and lots of waves of immigration um i think that not having the best and brightest people here is going to be negative for innovation i i don't see any other way to kind of cut that um I believe the H-1B visa program, which is for um, more highly skilled immigrants, uh, recently scaled back so that now you cannot get an expedited H-1B visa. So there's two ways to get your highly skilled visa. If you're, let's say, a cardiologist coming to the U.S. and and you're in demand, people need to do some surgeries or whatever. one is to go through the regular process, which takes seven or eight months. The other is to pay a couple thousand dollars and go through um, a more expedited process. That only takes about two weeks. You can get your State Department to review stuff. The State Department has said that at least for the next several months, they will not be doing the two-week expedited. And that's often somebody who's sponsored by a hospital, sponsored by a university, you know, because their expertise is needed soon at a conference, at a, you know, to do an operation, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so if you can't have the best cardiologist come in and talk to people, teach people, is that going to have an effect? Sure. I mean, are we going to get the operation done? Probably. Um, but I definitely think, I mean, we've always seen, whether it's Bell Labs or, you know, we talked about Einstein and his, and his um, you know, friends coming over around that time, all amazing scientists who um, increased the production of the American-born scientists around them, not just 
increase their own production. Yes, if you don't have the smartest people around you, is your game not going to be upped as much as it could be? I don't see how you could argue anything else. Um, I will say the, the other side of this, and, and 60 Minutes recently did a piece on this, is, um, you know, are H-1B visas, these highly skilled visas, being abused in the sense of bringing over people from places like India to take jobs for just a little less money that, that um, Americans did uh, before them. So, you know, an $80,000 a year job becomes a $60,000 a year job. I think it takes a lot of enforcement and a lot of smart thinking about incentives on the governmental level to think, how do you bring in the really, you know, the cardiologist or the technologist who can add a lot, who fills a, a, a gap that we don't have, and not somebody who can just displace an American worker who's doing exactly the same job and not they're not really contributing. And even the Indian worker brought, being brought in, as 60 Minutes reported, doesn't feel that great about, you know, having to displace somebody who they know. Just of course, to, yeah. you know. So I think, but that, that speaks to, then you have to have as smart a policy as you can and you have to have, you know, smart people really thinking about um, on the sort of enforcement in the State Department and, and you know, in all, in, in all sorts of ways, how do you optimize for the sort of immigration that is going to help us start new companies and, and get into new interest, industries and that kind of thing? Right, right. We shall see yeah. <laughs> where, where this all is headed. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. We were talking kind of the, the impact of innovation globally and at the, 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 the country and, and global level, um, but maybe also bring it back to, to Boston where both obviously continuum, but Innovation Hub started before you guys went, went uh, um, global. Um, and I want to talk about maybe one of my favorite shows. Okay. If you, if you can't tell, I'm a bit of an innovation fanboy. So oh, I'm so one, excited so we'll to go hear into what the, this favorite Into the way is. back machine a little bit um, uh, and talk about chloroform in Edinburgh. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I do. Um, oh, my gosh. For so a minute, I panicked. You're like, like I hope I remember it. Edinburgh. <laughs> have we done a show on that? And have then I realized, that? yes, we yeah, have. Yeah. Okay. Good, good, good. Okay. <laughs> this isn't um, stump the host. I'm not trying to do that. But um, but it's a it's a, it's a a good jumping off point for, for uh, the, this topic of connections that, that I wanted to talk about. Um, so the show was about a year ago, um, and it was called We Get the Geniuses We Deserve. Uh, and in a discussion with uh, the author of a book, um, uh, the quote was, geniuses tend to pop up more in environments where they're nurtured and respected and their ideas are entertained. And I've often been interested in how ideas are made through kind of manufactured serendipity and connections and the creativity and innovation hubs that come come through that. Um, so we're sitting right now in Continuum Studios in the Innovation and Design Building in the Innovation District of the city of Boston in a state that is one of the more innovative states in the country, right? right? right. Your show started um, in no small part because um, you felt like there was a lot going on in Boston, right. uh, you know, not just San Francisco and New York for, for innovation. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, as we see GE moving to, to Boston, um, Reeboks coming into this building, America's Test Kitchen in October, we see all the startups that are going on. Um, Boston is often a a location, an East Coast location for, for um, you know, Silicon Valley companies mm -hmm. and the like. Um, what are your thoughts on our very own innovation hub that is Boston? 
I think that uh, Boston is a really interesting place, not least because the kind of innovation is so diverse. So it's not like we just are creating apps all the time or whatever. Um, you know, there is, I mean, tremendous innovation and people don't think about it because the buildings are old, but there's tremendous innovation that comes out of the universities here. I mean, this is Boston, right, is a university town and you say Boston to a lot of people in the world and they say, Harvard, MIT, right? And that's, those are the, that's the first thing they think of. But, you know, obviously also Northeastern and, and Wellesley and BU and BC and all these places. And, and there's people in, you know, I mean, there's professors in the buildings of those universities all the time who are trying to think of new things in computer science, in how you deliver healthcare, in whatever it is. And that is, that is I think, often not thought of as part of the sort of innovation complex because we think like oh you have to have like you know red couches and swivel chairs right, and right. whatever and but it's an app on a phone as opposed exactly to, yeah. um and you know a fully uh loaded uh, bar of snacks and every you know which is great and and there should be more of those um but uh so i think universities and in it and it is because universities that we have i'll just like to point to another cluster of things that boston is huge in robotics mm -hmm. that's right that's because of mit i mean that's because of people like rodney brooks um, who helped found iRobot, um, which makes the Roomba, you know, um, and then he went on to other things, but, you know, he had all these students, and all those students went and did things, and, um, you know, and, and because of that, there's a lot of Boston area robotics companies. Obviously, some of those companies have been uh, bought by places like Amazon, you know, you've got sort of big buyers, Google has bought some stuff, um, but, yeah, I think Boston's really interesting, and I think, um, but you know this is both a good and a bad thing but i think we're in this time um the the great scholar of cities richard florida has talked about this where uh the winners win more and um for boston there's a greatness in that in that you have really smart people in universities really smart people in tech companies really smart, healthcare i should say huge place yeah. of healthcare innovation both in terms of great medical minds like doctors but then you know Harvard Med School right is you've got Harvard Med School working with Beth Israel so there's there's all sorts of things that people are trying out not only are people just treating people like everyday kind of stuff and doing regular surgeries but people are also trying things right. because there's they're coming out of labs and that kind of thing um, meds and eds I've heard exactly it yeah. exactly um, so uh, it's so varied and then you even talk about food you know things start spilling over um, into other areas and 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 not incidentally, you've got enough people with enough disposable income that they can say, I'm going to go to this, you know, cafe art science, you know, where people are doing crazy stuff and maybe they charge a lot. But but it's interesting. It's interesting enough for me to try it. And sometimes you need that kind of initial money infusion to figure out, oh, how can I do this on a larger scale, maybe cheaper. But in the beginning, it's not cheap and you're just still trying to figure it out and that kind of thing. Um, so I, th I think Boston is, to me, it feels like it's on a roll. Um, you know, I think there's downsides where you've got an awful lot of rich people coming in and an awful lot of housing being built for those rich people. 
And um, those rich people are important because they often run these uh, organizations and they it's important for them to meet each other. Um, but then you've got issues of, well, there are a lot of jobs being created, but nobody can afford to live anywhere near them. So that's kind of a problem. Um, but then you have this other thing of like, what happens when all the venture capitals, venture capital dollars essentially in this country are spent on San Francisco, San Jose, Boston, and New York. And there's other places too, but if you just take those four places, there's not a lot else being spent on a lot right. of other places. And in San Francisco and San Jose, for example, have been growing in their percentage of venture capital dollars spent. And it just leads to more bifurcation in the country, which I think we should try to think of some sort of way around. You know? Right, right. Yeah, how do you how do you create new opportunities in new cities? I mean, that is kind yeah. of the the world is spiky, rich right. Florida stuff. Right? That's right. How do you make sure that it's not spiked in just two places? Right? In some <laughs> ways, I think you have to think of other hubs, mm-hmm. so that no, I mean, I don't see how you're going to outdo Silicon Valley on being Silicon Valley. You shouldn't really try, but can you? I mean. Orlando has a lot of stuff. Now, when I say Orlando, you think of certain kinds of things. And Orlando's really figured out a niche. Um, and so are there ways for other cities, and, and, and there are cities that are really doing this. Cleveland's got a whole bunch of really interesting things going on with the Cleveland Clinic and, you know, you know um, Rochester, Minnesota, um, you know, uh, with Mayo. So thinking of, like, ways that there can be an edge and that can be built on and money can be pumped into that and seeing, you know, can this be a destination for this? Right, right. I like the idea of um, the the title of the show, which was, we get the geniuses we deserve. Um, is Boston getting the geniuses it deserves? I don't know. I mean, I, I think Boston does pretty well in the genius quotient. I think it's definitely <laughs> going to be hurt if fewer people from other countries sure. come. Because um, that's, that's going to affect Boston across all sorts of levels. Like it's going to affect undergraduates, graduates, postdoctoral students, um, professors, uh, you know, high tech, uh, uh, high tech workers, um, uh, people who are um, star doctors in their home country. So it's all the way from, you know, 18 year olds up to people who are fully into their profession in terms of um, giving back to the U.S. So. Right. Right. Cool. Um, how am I doing, by the way? Because I'm super like nervous. Because it's like it's like me uh, trying to. I mean, this is what you do every day. So if you're I'm bombing, well. you let you're me know. You're doing well. <laughs> no pressure, right? No, you're doing well. Um, an- another story that that stood out to me uh, was the 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 story about the child who was given 39 pills. Um, yeah. Uh, when he was supposed to receive one. Right. Um, we we do human centered design here, um, and technology is an enabler. And that story reminded me of uh, a quote from Cedric Price, you know, decades ago. Um, and he said, technology is the answer, but what is the question? And I feel like that show really captured that that idea. Um, so just for, 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 for listeners who might not have heard that show, this was around um, uh, a, a doctor, um, Bob Wachter. Am right. I saying that right? That's Bob right. Wachter. That's right. Um, and his belief uh, as a doctor that um, people become too reliant on technology. And he had this quote that he said, people defer to technology. Um, so, uh, you know, we try to see technology as an enabler to human needs as opposed to, you know, the solution. Are you seeing that in other places beyond the, the, the healthcare space? Or what, what are your general thoughts about that? Oh my gosh, we're all looking for the technology solution, but is that are we becoming overly reliant maybe on that? 
Well, I'll just say quickly about Bob Wachter, who that was, he was telling a story. He uh, helps run the hospital at University of California, San Francisco. And that was, that child was supposed to get one antibiotic and actually accidentally got 39 um, antibiotic pills and, and went into, um, had a grand mal seizure. Um, just because it was just like through a series of unfortunate events, it, it got written down wrong on the, uh, on the computer. Um, how many pills he was supposed to get? It, nobody did anything intentionally and, and, and wrong. The nurse thought it seemed weird, but figured the, nurse, the computer couldn't be wrong, right? It, I mean, it was, it was like, like a perfect storm, and and so the doctor, the doctor put it in right, but then it bumped it back to the doctor because the doctor, it wasn't exactly entered in the way the computer understood it, or the doc, I think the doctor maybe had, um, there was an issue of. Um, that she put in a number that the pills don't aren't exactly dispersed and you know sometimes like pills are to 22 milligrams right, right, right but she put a number that wasn't so they said bumped it back and they're like no no you have to like pick one of these so she did but what she accidentally did that second time was she put in one pill which she didn't realize is she had put in one pill per kilogram of weight so which came to 39 pills because he was 39 kilograms but she only meant to prescribe one right now, she didn't realize that was a problem. It did alert her, but there were so many alerts. People in hospitals get so many alerts that she just overrode the alert as she did with every other alert. Right. We've all been at a hospital where you hear yeah. 90 beeps going. Yes, and, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, you know, it just went on and on. There was actually, in that case, a robot who dispensed the pills, so the robot didn't question it. Um, and uh, the nurse should have questioned it and did kind of accept. She was a visiting nurse on that floor, and she... You know, she didn't want to seem dumb, and she didn't really know what they did on that floor, and also it's a teaching hospital, so she went, maybe, I don't know, like, maybe this isn't, he's, like, part of a more experimental drug regime, and she just didn't, she actually checked with the boy, I think, who was like, oh, it seems okay, you know, he didn't know, and so he dutifully took all these pills. Um, and then they had this big investigation afterwards to figure out what the heck happened, how could this ever happen? Um, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't, he, Bob Wachter's concern was that technology had taken over uh, medicine in ways that doctors often resented and weren't really good for them. Um, I do hear that from doctors. I don't think it's really been figured out yet. I think doctors uh, very often will go home at night and instead of being done, they're doing things on their iPads right. to try to figure out the paperwork. There's so many things to enter, I think. Um, you know, doctors can often be kind of cha feel chained to their laptop and feel like they're kind of talking to you, the patient, but really they're like entering all this data and they have to do all this stuff. So yeah, I do think we're going through growing pains of figuring out how do you actually do your job, which is be a doctor and help the patient and not in a way where you're serving some kind of programmer who figured out like these are the 15 questions you should be asking or the 29 questions you should be asking and it's not just the programmer the programmers working on behalf of the you know insurance companies who are like hey could you ask this that'd really help right. us out or whatever and so there you know i do think we're going through some growing pains i think in a larger it's a much larger picture issue but i think in a larger picture i think we need to figure out ways to use technology in a way that's good for us as individuals, but does not feel like we're addicted to it, like we can't walk away from it, 
Like we're using it when we should really be helping our kids. You know, I think these are all things people struggle with. I struggle with them all the time. Like when do you put your computer away? When do you put your phone away? Um, and I actually think this is really, it's not talked about enough, but I think it's actually really important that we figure it out, that we figure out ways where we can think for a while without turning to technology because that's when the really deep thinking occurs. And, uh, you know, if we don't do that, we're going to be robbed of the next generation of really great products or ideas or whatever it is. Right, right. It becomes potentially more incremental because you're not looking at the the whys underneath some of these these ideas. Exactly. Right? And any big ideas you're uh, you have are just interrupted by some guy trying to talk to you on Slack. Right, and right, like, right, you know. right. Another messaging app, right? right? That's right. invented. Um, so, so you've interviewed so many fantastic people, so many creative people. Are there characteristics that you have found in common? Or if you were to, to, to do a startup tomorrow, are there certain yeah, attributes that good teams have or these innovative people have that you're like, oh man, we really, we really should keep an eye out for this type of characteristic? It's hard because I've interviewed so many different kinds of people. You know, we talked about Walter Isaacson, who's a writer, and, 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 you know, I've interviewed a lot of historians and a lot of technologists and a lot of academics and, you know, so different kinds of people. Um, I think, I mean, a couple of things I would point to are just focus and, you know, if you can find something you're really into – I mean, I think of somebody like John Gruber at MIT who's helped rethink healthcare. First, he did it in Massachusetts. It was called Romney Care, and he did it at the national level, and it's called Obamacare. Um, but he's been working on healthcare for like 30 years. I, I actually just talked to him recently, and I was like, 30 years is right, right? And he's not old. And, and the thing is, he wrote his dissertation on it. So it's, he's been like working on it for a long time. Um, but I think focus, which doesn't mean you have to do the same thing for 30 years. It just is like, he's really into it. I mean, I don't think he's bored because this is like, this is super big and complicated and he's trying to figure it out. Um, so I think focus. Um, but I also would come back to what I just said, which is I also think that having the time to focus and setting aside those distractions is super important and I struggle with it all the time but you know when I'm like listening back to the show or when I'm trying to read the book of somebody who's really smart I have to like walk away from my computer sometimes I walk into another room yep. I walk across the room <laughs> you know I do what I can to focus and think for a while because I mean phones are they are hypnotic right, and right. and and i mean i learn a lot of They're really like the, the pellet for a mouse right like exactly we just get that trigger like more Ex information you never yeah. know when you're going to get a great email right, you have right, to keep right. checking um <laughs> and so that you know and it's not like i mean I read the newspaper on my phone, so it's not like I don't also learn a lot of things and they're like, they're not the source of all evil. But if you want to think deeply about something, about how you want to change the world or how you want to create something new, you have to step away for a little while from those emails and they'll pretty, they'll probably all still be there when you get back right. and you know, that right. kind of thing. So yeah. And they don't age well. So maybe you just skip the ones you missed, right? <laughs> exactly. The, that's right. Um, so is there, you know, all these people you've spoken with, all the, 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 the different areas that, that, um, of expertise that you've come across, is there one topic or person or, or industry that, 
that is next that you know you really feel like you haven't quite gotten uh, time with? Ooh, that is a hard question. I mean, as somebody who used to be really focused on politics, what's going on in the country is very, very interesting to me. And it's very interesting how it's going to be resolved, how we're going to work through it, whether we're going to come together, whether we're going to pull farther apart. This is obviously not the only country that's dealing with these kinds of issues, but it does feel, doesn't it, like we're in this moment of huge change um, and where the pendulum is swinging, but you know, sometimes when the pendulum swings far, it sw- swings real back far the other yeah. way too. Um, and so it will be inter- it's really interesting to me in some ways, whether we're going to look back in five or 10 years and say, wow, that was a moment that changed things. And even in saying that, wow, that was a moment that changed things, I don't know whether it means, wow, that was a moment that changed things in the sense that we will continue to move in the direction that we're moving in politically, or whether it was the moment that crystallized things moving in the other direction. It becomes a springboard. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I, I just think there's there's a lot, um, you know, there's a lot going on. We We have a show coming up about California and California being very different politically, but also a lot of that's tied in with science and global warming and and medical research and, you know, um, solar and wind energy research. And so the role of these, you know, these different factions as they, as they, I mean, and California, the home of Silicon Valley, this is a very, very interesting time. And we've got a lot of power centers and it's unclear to me what you know what will shake out right right well that's a good point because it there's there's the federal there's the state there's cities right uh whether it's a boston a new york uh in la yes San Francisco. and so there's a lot each of, of those yeah yeah there's a lot of competition for where the power is going to lie there's right. going to be a lot of lawsuits there have been some already um emanating from the states about things like immigration but there will be more i'm sure um and yeah, I think there's a lot of fighting right now over where that power is, and everybody's trying to appropriate as much power as they can. You know, the mayor of Boston wants power, right. and he's going to try to launch initiatives. And then the question is, where is that going to rub up with the national government, which he doesn't agree that much with? And where will they try to stop things? Can they? It's a very interesting time. Right. It is. It is. Another very interesting time is... Uh, news and journalism broadly. So my, my last question for you was around innovation for your own show. So I think most of us remember how podcasts came then they went, right? And it's like, oh, you do podcasts, that's weird. And now they're so hot again, right? It's a new kind of uh, uh, asynchronous way to listen to, to, to radio and the like. Um, the medium of radio, podcasts, where journalism is going, where innovation hubs going. Do you have thoughts on the, the future of your show? Well, I mean, we have spent the last three years just, you know, getting into more markets and um, trying to hear voices from different places around the country, which I think is important. Um, so hopefully that will uh continue we added chicago recently and and portland oregon not that long ago so you know i think hearing from from people around the country is really is that's really really important to us um 
Um, and we do some traveling to, to, you know, to visit, to go to those places and to talk to people. I think journalism is in a tricky time for all sorts of reasons. Like one is, you, you know, you talked about podcasting. One is technological. The technology that people use to consume things is changing. Um, uh, another is ideological. You know, there's we've talked a lot about splits and people curating their own worlds and, and picking the world that they feel good about. Um, I think that... I mean, I'm not worried. Maybe I should be worried. I, I may just be in my own little no, know, delusion. I, 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 but... I think looking at it optimistically <laughs> is the right way. I mean, there's a lot of exciting opportunities. Right. I think that people have time to consume media. And so if you create things that they feel like it's worthwhile for them to consume, um, that's, that's a good start. Um, I think radio actually is still, even though podcasting clearly has had a huge surge and it's a little bit the Wild West and there's 8 million podcasts right, right. and about a million of them are new every day, I feel like, um, and that will probably be thinned out to some degree. Um, but I definitely podcasting is here to stay, just like much in the way that time-delayed television is here to stay. People don't always want to be beholden to that I have to watch the show at 8 p.m., sure. you know, that kind of thing. I do think, though, that radio is kind of here to stay for a while because as people's commutes get longer um which they are in lots of places and i think overall in the country they have gotten longer um i think that you know people turning on the radio in their cars is is a is a thing that's going to be here for a while at least well and and it's an it's the one medium that lends itself to you know painting my bedroom, which I did this weekend while yes. listening to podcasts right. or radio. Right? right. I mean, you can do it in a lot of different ways. For, yeah. Exactly. Um, but I do think media is also going to through this, as I said, ideological time. And it's really hard to figure out. And then you've also got this issue of, you know, what facts are, are the real facts? And how about if you present other facts? And I mean, boy, it is really tricky time. But and, and I think different outlets have decided for themselves some outlets have decided we're going to do full-on you know here's our point of view and this is what it is other outlets have tried to say well we're gonna get all different points of view um since innovation hub is kind of just like me on the air um i i I, we try as much as we can, although it is a team of uh, behind the me on the air. It is a team of four really amazing people who work at least as hard as I do to put it together. Um, and I think we try to find people who can take a deeper dive than the stuff that is coming at us a hundred miles an hour every day. Um, so in some ways, it's a newsy show. You talked about, like, we talked about integ- innovation and immigration. Um, so in some ways, it's a newsy show. But we're able to look back to, you know, the immigration around World War II in a way that nobody covering right. the lawsuits unfolding around immigration in this country can possibly cover on, like, the nightly news or even on wonderful shows like, you know, Morning Edition, All Things Considered, they're literally covering what's happening right now, and they so have their hands full. And we're trying to say, hey, immigration and innovation, how are these things connected? You know, we brought a scientist on, uh, sorry, we brought an academic on who had really looked at 
patent production on American-born scientists, were they affected by all these immigrants coming? Like, did those people take their patents away? Did they, you know, kind of bigfoot them and like push them to the side? Right. Actually, they made them more productive because they were all these smart people. And they're like, hey, did you know this idea? We've been thinking about this a lot in Germany. You may not have heard about this. And, you know, and, pe- and Americans even were more productive. But, but those kinds of things, I think, they're kind of about what we're all talking about. But they're a dive that like nobody has time to do sure. on a Tuesday during drive time. Which, which to your point, uh, your format lends itself better to, right? You can go deeper into these topics and exactly. focus on them. So that's what we're trying to do is like shed a little more light on things that you just didn't have time to do you know, when you were just covering what was happening, which is a major undertaking in and of itself. Right, right. That's cool. I... um. I, I, I like how Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and Prairie Home Companion have kind of done the the, the physical so you can go like watch it. So I, I would come if you guys decide to do that. We've yeah. done a few, but okay. we haven't done it for a couple of years. We've um, we filled the modern, modern theater in the theater district a few times in Boston, but that was like when we were starting out. I will definitely think about that again. <laughs> it is so fun. It is so fun. Um, we had one that was about robotics with Andrew McAfee and Rodney Brooks and and um, Daniel Theobald, who runs Vecna, and he brought robots, and it was That's awesome. awesome. So it was a radio show, but because the audience, he brought them. A radio show with robots. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Um, and we had one with a 3D printer where they 3D printed keychains for everybody in the audience. But the thing is, they were so much work. Really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were so much work. Um, super fun. I just have to figure out the time to do them. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, given Garrison Keillor and Prairie Home Companion, how's your singing? It's not good. Okay, it's all right. It's not so there's good no singing at all. At the, I won't be singing. At the live version of Innovation. Yeah, Fair yeah. <laughs> we'll have to bring in a singer. We'll do that, yeah. <laughs> Pete Chapin is a great singer. We'll have oh, great. <laughs> well, Kara, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, this thanks for awesome. having me. This was really fun. All right, great. Thanks. The Resonance Test Podcast is where we seek out people who are consistently able to go from inspiration and cool ideas to fully implementing them. Innovation in this form can be found in all sorts of fields, from health and tech to food and the workplace, and we love hearing how different people go about doing this repeatedly. Continuum is a global innovation design consultancy with studios in Boston, Milan, Seoul, and Shanghai. At Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, it's not really innovative until it exists. If you want to learn more about Continuum and the work we do, go to continuuminnovation.com. Thanks to Kara and John for their great conversation today. Many thanks to Kip, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Our unending appreciation to Ken Gordon, our producer, for his masterminding behind the scenes. And to you, our listeners, we thank you for your ears. Mm-hmm.